please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading will be in Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your, your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. If you have your Bibles and in that moment didn't have a chance to get it out, I want to encourage you to get it out. Open it up to Mark chapter 2 as we continue walking through the gospel according to Mark, beholding Jesus our King. Uh, today, as we, we open the book, we get to this really interesting story, this, mo- this story that if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard this story many times, uh, this interesting story that paints a picture of Jesus in a really unique way, in a way that's unique to anyone else that's ever walked the earth. Uh, but as we, as we turn there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard this phrase? Duct tape fixes anything. <laughs> Maybe you have. Maybe you've used the phrase. It's pretty common. Uh, it's this idea that when something's broken, just get some duct tape, slap it on there, and you're good to go. I mean, if, if in NASCAR they can hold an entire car going 200 miles down the road together with duct tape, surely whatever broke in your house can be fixed with some duct tape. But here's the deal. Duct tape doesn't actually fix anything. Duct tape doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix it any more than repainting a house that's infested with termites fixes the termite infestation. It doesn't fix it any more than mowing your grass week after week after week when it's actually all weeds. Thinking, oh, look at my pretty yard. When I mow it, it looks even better. It doesn't fix the reality that your yard's not grass. It's weeds. So in the same way, when something is broken, duct tape does not fix it. It cannot fix it. It does not fix it. All duct tape does is hold what's broken together. That's all it does. It doesn't fix it at all. Painting a house infested with termites is only going to last so long before you begin to see the 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 sheetrock inside crack, the siding on the outside begin to fall apart some more because you've masked it, you've covered it up, you've hidden the underlining problem. It doesn't fix it any more than me mowing my yard faithfully every single week and making it look pretty only to see in five days the weeds show back up again And because you've never taken care of the termites and you've never fertilized and pulled the weeds at their roots. 
In the same way, this week as we behold Jesus our King, we see that Jesus is the forgiving King. And as the forgiving King, Jesus has come to establish His kingdom and restore not only, although He does frequently, we've already seen, external needs that we have, but Jesus has come to bring a healing, not externally, but an internal healing. And Jesus has come to bring about an internal restoration. Jesus has come to meet an internal, the greatest need that you have in your life. So this week we're going to see this, that Jesus came to meet your greatest need. And we're going we're to see this as we walk through the passage in three questions. So if you're taking notes, if you have your Mark journal and you're going to work through that, great. If you have something else, go for it. If you want one of those Mark journals, there's a few more of them across the way. Welcome to grab one. They're five bucks. We're almost out. Um, I just want to also give you a heads up. We're, we're barely going to get into chapter three before we take a break from Mark. So if you got your Mark journal and you were like, oh, we're going to do this thing in like four months. You're wrong. Sorry. Hope we didn't lead you astray in that. But hold on to it because we're going to come back to Mark after we do some other things, after Advent and all that stuff. So, uh, but so three questions that we're going to look at as we walk through this passage. What is faith? Who forgives sins? And this is particular here. Where, not what, where is your greatest need? Where is your greatest need? So the first one, what is faith? Mark 2, we just heard it. Let's read it again. Verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening... They let down the bed on which the paralytic laid. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. See, news has, has spread, not only about Jesus' popularity, but particularly in his home base for mission in Capernaum. News has spread that Jesus is back in town. He's back at home. We don't know how he got back in town, how he got back without people noticing. Maybe he came back at night, nobody noticed or whatnot. But he's back at home. News has spread in Capernaum, in kind of the, the home base for Jesus' ministry. And the crowd just begins to come. We're not talking like little dinner party here. We're talking about crammed into the house, spilling over out of the house. People wanting to see and sit at the feet of Jesus so bad that they're, they're crammed at the doorways just to hear what he's saying if the volume will just travel out the entrance. Now I can imagine painting, the, when I see this picture the way Mark paints it, or, or, or Matthew, or Luke, it's like no more room in the house. It's just like shoulder to shoulder, like when you went to a concert, and you got super sweaty, and you're inside this space, and everybody's singing, and everybody's excited, um, and you're just like, I don't have any personal space. Kind of that concert where if you're, you're like, I don't want to put my hands down, because I don't know what I'm going to touch. If my hands are down because people are so close, you just kind of do one of these kind of things. Like, I think it's like that crowded in this house. And as it's crowded, word has traveled throughout the city, and these four men have a friend who's paralyzed. And these men believe something. They believe that Jesus had the power to heal their friend. They believe not only they had the power, but Jesus would heal their friend. So they picked their friend up, and in their faith, in their belief, they moved towards Jesus. And when they get to the house, 
They see that picture that we just saw. What do we do? I mean, apparently it's not supposed to happen. Turn around and walk home. Well, I mean, I thought that Jesus would, but apparently not. No, like they aren't wavered at all by this massive crowd that they can't get through the doorway to see Jesus. Because something that's driving them moves them beyond the first obstacle, a crowd, maybe the third, fourth obstacle, and takes them up the stairwell on the side of this house. So when you think about this house, don't think like shingle your house. Think like, like square house, flat roof, stairwell, and it's not like somebody climbed on top of your roof where the only reason you get up there is to hang Christmas lights every year. Now, this is like they did life on the roof of their house. I mean, think back, if you, if you know the story, uh, of when David um, looks out from his palace on his roof and he sees Bathsheba. Where's Bathsheba? She's on the roof. And what's she doing on the roof? She's bathing. So the roof wasn't like this like, weird place. You don't go there. The roof was a part of the house in the same way that like your second story would be a part of your house. So they aren't stopped. They pick up this guy, continue to carry him. They go up the stairs. They get above. I assume they can, they're like, oh yeah, this is probably where Jesus is. And they begin to remove the roof. And as they pull off these tiles in the roof, they can see Jesus. And they lower their friend down in front of him. Talk about a sermon interruption. Like, think about it. Like, talk about a sermon interruption. The dirt begins to, to fall. Like, people are like, oh man, what's going on? Like, Jesus, maybe he's like getting hit by the pebbles or whatever. And, and then this person comes down. Like, like, that's what happens. And what's Jesus doing? He's doing what he came to do. He's preaching and teaching to these people, right? That's what he says earlier. I've come to preach. Let's go to the next town. Back home, doing what he does. He's preaching. And boom, dude lands on the floor in front of him. Something I want us to, to pay attention here. There's a small word that carries so much significance in this passage. In verse 5, it says this. And when Jesus saw their faith. You see, Jesus saw. And he didn't see what we might have expected him to see. He, it, Mark doesn't say, and Jesus looked up and saw the sky. Or he looked up and saw four guys and a mat and a person and ropes lowering him down inside. He didn't say he looked up and saw a crippled man. That what Jesus sees in this moment, and just, just to, say, to, to stop and say, Jesus sees you. That Jesus saw, but Jesus takes note, not of the roof damage, like we might. <laughs> Jesus sees, but he doesn't take notice, it seems, of the physical condition of this paralyzed man, although we can't ignore that Jesus knew it. But Jesus sees their what? Their faith. And of course, Jesus knows he's paralyzed, and he knows this roof's now damaged and has to be repaired. But Jesus sees, listen, beyond the temporal, monetary, physical need in front of him. And he sees these men's hearts. And he sees what lies inside of their hearts is the same thing that drove them to the house that day. What, what the thing that carried these men from 
this guy's house or one of their houses, the thing that, that carried them each step of the way as they carried their friend, the thing that when they saw this massive crowd, this obstacle in the way of what they came for, what carried them up each step to the roof, what carried them through the awkward, are we going to get in trouble for undoing these people's roof? What carried them through each one of those things was what? Their faith. That Jesus could and Jesus would heal their friend. Jesus sees their faith. And this unpacks for us what faith is. See, here's a really short, you can go to Hebrews 11.1 1 and get a really beautiful picture of faith. And it's right, it's true. So kind of lump what I'm about to say to Hebrews 11.1. 1. The assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. Faith is visible belief. Faith is visible belief. See, faith begins in the heart as they sit in their friend's living room. But faith didn't stay there. It got them up off their couches and moved them towards Jesus. See, faith, when Jesus looks up and he sees their hearts, he sees their hearts by what they're doing. By their faith that Jesus could and would that brought them there. Their faith was true because their faith was visible. Their faith moved them. Their faith kept moving them. They believed in their hearts that Jesus could and would do something and moved towards Jesus to see it done. James 2, 14 through 17 says this, and it was going to be up there, but it's not. So listen close. If you want to write it down in your journal, James 2, 14 through 17 says this. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. To say that they had faith and stayed in their homes would have been a lie. Because what James says, this is the brother of Jesus, says faith is visible. Faith is visible in your life. Their faith is what got them up. Their faith is what moved them. Their faith is what made the bed movable. Their faith is what dug the hole. Their faith is what climbed the steps and what brought them before Jesus. You see, the faith in our hearts is visible in our life, in every facet of our life. I've seen some of the most beautiful demonstrations of faith in Trailview Church over the last eight weeks. People who have serious needs. And in home groups, they don't just say, oh, I'm so sorry. They do something about it. Because Jesus is transforming your heart and moving you towards displaying the faith and trust that you have in God in meeting physical needs that people have. In providing the things that they need. 
Faith is visible, but faith, it begins in our hearts. See, I want us to be clear and understand this, that faith in our hearts is what justifies you before Jesus. Let me clarify that. Like all of us stand guilty before God in our sin. And it's our faith in Jesus at the core of who we are in our hearts that makes us innocent before God, justified as if you never sinned. That that faith in your heart is what makes you justified, sinless before the eyes of God. And it begins here in your heart. But faith that, it, that says it's here but has no evidence there is no faith at all, according to James. See, what Jesus sees here is their faith, but he sees their faith in their very life. Their trust and belief that Jesus could and would. 1 John 2, 4-6 through 6 says this, Whoever says, I know him, meaning Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him. And whoever keeps his words, Jesus' words, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That faith is in our hearts, justifies us before God, but seen and made visible in our daily lives. If you want to go just kind of study this this next week, start at James chapter 2, verse 14, and just keep reading. And it goes back and looks at Abraham. It says, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac up on the altar? Well, uh, underneath that offering Isaac on the altar was a trust that if God killed him, he'd bring him back to life because God's a promise-keeping, faithful God. And if he didn't, he'd provide another sacrifice to get in his way and be on that altar. That our faith must be visible. That to have faith in Jesus is to live the way of Jesus. And I want to make sure that we don't get this confused. Your faith in Jesus is what justifies you internally. That you are forgiven and delighted in by God as his children, adopted into his forever family by faith. But faith that is not visible in your life is caused to question if there's faith at all in your heart. I'll say that again. Faith that's said to be in your heart that's not visible in your life is caused to stop and say, is there faith really there? And, and to clarify, we're not saying perfect faith. We're saying the presence of faith. But these guys didn't have perfect faith. But faith was there, present in their hearts. So, I mean, asking the confronting, helpful question are you resting your entire eternity on a faith that's not visible? Are you hoping that you'll spend eternity with God, have eternal life in a faith that's in your heart maybe, but not actually visible in your daily life? That's, that's a question you need to wrestle with and think through. Again, not perfect. We're not looking for perfect faith. Jesus isn't delighted to encounter this man because of his perfect faith. He's delighted to move in this moment because of the presence of faith in this man. I would encourage you that if you're 
If you're realizing right now, Holy Spirit, move. If you're realizing right now that, that there is no faith in you, that you would repent of your unbelief and sin and today put your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That you would put your faith in His sacrifice in your place and His death and His resurrection for you. That you would believe in Jesus today. And I also want to warn us of something. That it's easy for us to believe the lie that the Lord's delight, that His pleasure in you is based on your progress in faith. I'm going to say that again. It's easy for us once we are in Christ, we have faith in Him, to believe that the Lord's delight, His pleasure in you is based upon your progress in faith. An easy way, a helpful way to diagnostically answer or ask this question is this. When you sin, what do you think God feels or thinks towards you? Like when you, when you blow it, big or small, what do you think that God feels towards you and thinks about you? That, that if you think God is disgusted, if you think that God is disappointed, I want to remind you of this. God's delight in you is not based on your progress in faith. Or the fancy Christian word, sanctification. His, his delight and pleasure in you as his child is not based on your performance. His delight, his pleasure, his love for you is based on the presence of faith. Your justification in Jesus alone. That Jesus delights in these men enough to move and forgive their sins, not because of perfect faith, but because of the presence of faith. So are you trusting having faith in Jesus and, and how is it showing itself in your life? For a Christian, we should progressively be seeing our trust in Jesus, our faith in Him, in, in every facet of life. Be that your physical life, that, that you have faith in Jesus even if He doesn't heal you. In your finances, when there's need, you rest and trust in His provision. In your emotional life, that you rest and trust in Jesus. In your spiritual life, in the work that he's doing in you, in your social life, in relational conflict and, and peace? Is your faith in Jesus visible? In your family, in, in your work, in your own thoughts? Is your faith manifesting in those areas of your life? It, it, it should be progressing towards more visibility. Out of your heart, overflowing into all of your life. You see, Jesus sees their hearts, and in them he sees faith overflowing into their hands. So what is faith? Faith is visible belief. And Jesus sees your heart as well, and he sees it. He sees if there's a glimmer of faith in there. He says a bruised reed he will not break. 
If there is faith there, he loves and delights. And he works to see that flame of faith grow. He sees their faith and he forgives. So who, the second question, who can forgive sin? Verse 5. And Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes who were sitting there questioned in their hearts, what is this, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And you see, Jesus sees not only the faith of these guys, but he sees the hearts of the scribes. So remember we said this a few weeks ago, scribes are your experts in God's words. These, these are the pastors of town. These are the circuit preachers that would travel through the different villages, opening God's word, his scrolls, and teaching the people. These are the, the Hebrew scholars of their day. They're the seminary professors. And Jesus sees their hearts. But in Jesus, it literally says he, uh, they had these thoughts in their hearts and Jesus knew them. And Jesus, in his grace, engages them in their hearts. And here's the thing that we see. They're right. Let's be clear here. They're right. The scribes have great theology. They're right. Only God can forgive sins. They're absolutely right. Their theology is orthodox. Their theology is right. You see, they have embraced a humanitarian teacher, Jesus, but they have rejected the divine incarnate Jesus. That they believe and they trust and they love Jesus who heals people. And they're in, they're like to this point in the gospel, there's no conflict between the religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, the, the expert teachers, and Jesus. There's no conflict. By all accounts, they're gladly there to sit at the feet of Jesus and just be amazed by his ability to teach. The pastors are showing up to listen to the carpenter talk about God, and they're glad to be there, it seems, because there's no conflict at this point. Their theology is right, and they have embraced the humanitarian teacher, Jesus, a lot like our culture. We love Jesus when we talk about how he heals people. We love Jesus when we talk about the morals that he teaches. But when Jesus begins to step on our toes, our culture doesn't like him anymore. Because when Jesus steps most on your toes is when he begins to speak definitively like God. And that's what he does here. See, even these teachers who maybe were thinking, oh, this is the Messiah. 
theology right, expectation wrong. Because the Messiah doesn't forgive sins in their view. The Messiah roots out the sin of Rome and establishes the sinless Israelite kingdom. And they're blind to see and miss Jesus who came. And in his coming, Jesus comes to root out the sin in their hearts and establish his rule and reign there. You see, you can have a mind filled with all the right theology and a heart void of faith and gain absolutely nothing. You can have all the right theology and in heart with not a drop of faith and be condemned to hell. Because right theology is not faith. Jesus also proves who he is here. He says, is it not easier to heal or to say your sins are forgiven? That Jesus displays his divinity in two particular ways. He forgives the guy's sin and he heals the guy's body. Walk through this. What is their response? Only God can forgive sin. There's the first thing. Jesus just said, I forgive your sins. There's the second thing. Jesus says, forgiving sins is easier than, than healing the body. And so what does Jesus do? He heals the body. And by Jesus doing the harder thing, what is he doing? Proving his power and position to do the easier thing. Forgive sin. That when Jesus heals this guy's body, he's making a declarative statement about who he is. Yes, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. And that's not that hard. What's harder is healing this guy's body. But I'm going to heal his body to show you that I can also do this. See, Jesus is making a declaration that Jesus is God and Jesus alone can forgive sins because he is God. That Jesus sees these men, the, the paralyzed guy, his friends, their hearts. He sees the hearts of the people in the crowd. He sees the scribes, right theology and lack of faith. He sees your heart here today. And in that, Jesus is God, able, ready to gladly forgive sin. Able and ready to gladly extend mercy towards the rebel and grace towards the adulterer. Jesus is able and ready to forgive sin. He sees your heart. I want to just make this statement about um, faith one more time. The measure of mature faith is not theological accuracy. Say that again. The measure of mature faith is not theological accuracy, knowing the right things about God. What does Jesus say? He says, uh, unless you have the faith of this child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Children don't understand the complex theological components of who God is, what he's done in the gospel. 
yet he tells us to admire their faith. Because mature faith is not measured by theological accuracy, but by visible trust in Jesus. See, these guys had theological accuracy, yet no faith, no trust in God who provided them a Savior. Uh, it makes me think of uh, the, uh, these guys, the, the four dudes and the crippled guy. Their faith does what? It moves them towards Jesus. And as, as we sit here now, and, and I pray, I hope the Holy Spirit's convicted us of sin and righteousness and judgment as he does, that your movement would not be away from Jesus like these scribes, but would be like the, the four friends and the cripple who move towards Jesus, who's ready and wants to work in you, wants to forgive. So come to Jesus. The response to a need of his work in forgiveness is not, okay, I'll do more. I'll obey more faithfully. I'll pray more. When we're convicted of our own sin, faith moves us to him, not towards yourself. See, these scribes, what do they do? They're disgusted. This is the beginning of five conflicts Jesus has consecutively in Mark chapter 2 and 3 with these scribes. And when they're confronted with their lack of faith, they huddle together and they talk theology. The people Jesus comes to and sees faith, they come to him, and in coming to him, they find forgiveness, restoration, joy, and life. What is faith? Faith is visible belief. Who can forgive sins? God alone. And Jesus is God. And third question, where is your greatest need? Where is your greatest need? There's something really alarming about this crowd's reaction to this moment. And it might be like, again, one of those like, wow, praise God, they all worship Jesus. Yeah, not really. See, they're amazed by something. And we look at the, the story of the people of Capernaum they're amazed by something, but they're amazed by the wrong thing. Read the last verse with me again. Chapter 2, verse 12. And he, the paralyzed guy, rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. Somehow the sea's part of people when he can get by. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. See, they were amazed, but what were they amazed by? They were amazed by the healing of this man's physical body. They were amazed by the miracle of Jesus not to do the spiritual work in this man's heart, but to do the physical work in his body. Their amazement towards Jesus isn't because of his declarative statement that I am God and I alone forgive sin. Their amazement is because of the tricks of miracles that Jesus has done consistently in their city. They're there to see Jesus do some cool stuff and say some cool things. 
they're not amazed by what Jesus has just declared. I am God. I alone forgive sin. This is consistent with the crowds that Jesus teaches. This is why Jesus says things that are just like, whoa, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And the crowd of 5,000 is like, see you later. (laughs) No thanks. Why are they there? Wow, this guy talks like nobody we've ever heard, and this guy does things we've never seen before. But they're not amazed by who Jesus is. They're amazed by what Jesus has done in this guy's physical body. See, Jesus did come as a good king to meet your greatest need. And he shows in this the greatest need. And the greatest need is much deeper than physical. And the same thing's true for us. The incarnate God has come to meet your greatest need. He came in flesh to do so. He went on a tour of healing people and preaching and did a ton of physical amazing things. But he didn't come to do that. His popularity reached all-time highs in the region. The whole city and area knew him. They were selling the rescue plan of God to redeem his people short for physical healing. There's a lot of temporal needs that we have. Physical needs. I mean, the story has one right in front of us. Physical need. Emotional distress and depression. Death. Physical or financial provision. I mean, imagine if Jesus could end death and poverty. That'd be pretty awesome. Imagine if Jesus could solve hunger. That'd be pretty amazing. Imagine if Jesus could heal everyone or came and actually healed everyone of their addictions. Imagine if Jesus, while he was here, healed every person of any, any level of physical sickness. Imagine if Jesus came and he provided homes for every homeless person there was. Imagine if Jesus ended hatred and division. Imagine if Jesus came and got rid of all demonic activity and possession. That'd be pretty amazing. And those are all real needs. And we feel like they're the deepest need right now in our life, if you feel one of them, or a couple of them. I mean, you can't imagine that this paralyzed guy didn't feel or think at times, like, if only I could move, life would be better. I mean, you may have thought, man, if if I only didn't have this depression... Man, if I wasn't addicted to this, then life would be better. If this physical health thing was gone, if if I had the financial means that I think I I, that I need, if if there wasn't hatred and division between me and so and so, then you see these things all impact very clear. Listen, all of these temporal needs impact an area of life. They impact 
an area of your life. And Jesus is a compassionate king, and he cares deeply about all of those things. That he sees you, and he's fully aware of them. And we know that because he comes and he physically takes care of a lot of them. And he continues by the power of the Holy Spirit and, and through common grace, doing it now. But here's the deal. Oftentimes our physical ailments or physical temporal needs only unveil the greatest need that we have is not physical, is not emotional, it's not relational, it's not financial. Our greatest need is not temporal, as weighty and as heavy as those feel. I just want to say, yes, they're real needs, but there's a deeper need. Our greatest need is spiritual, even deeper than all those things may feel. Our greatest need is deep down in your heart, and it overflows into every, all of, not a area, all of life. The greatest need that you have is forgiveness of your sins. That's the greatest need that you have. It's the very thing that Jesus does for this man. I think he didn't come there for it. He didn't show up looking for forgiveness. He showed up looking to walk home. But Jesus sees immediately the deeper, greater need. Let me give you three reasons why your greatest need is God's forgiveness of your sin. One, sin is the root of all disorder, all disease, all brokenness, all pain, and all discord. That sin is the root of all of it. Think Genesis chapter 3. Life is literally perfect. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Sin enters the picture, and what happens? It's literally destroyed. So the same thing's true in us, that, that at the root of all in life, whether that's internal, you've sinned, and it's causing those things in your life, or it's external, others have sinned, and you're experiencing the discord, division, brokenness, pain, all that because of their sin, or if it's because the sin that that has happened in the world and has fractured the very structure of our world, creating discord and dysfunction. Whatever it is, that sin is the root of all of it. I think we said this last week, like to treat the symptom yet not the cause is not good care. So number one, sin is the root of all of that. That's why, you, why your greatest need is for God's forgiveness. Number two, physical needs are serious, but physical needs are temporal. That literally, if Jesus came and did all those things I, I described, if he solved world hunger in first century AD, if he healed every physical ailment in first century AD, if he rooted out all depression and anxiety, if he, uh, if he healed or raised everyone who was at the time dead from, de from the death, if he ended poverty, if he healed every addiction, if he restored physical sickness and health, if he provided homes for every, ho every homeless person in the first century, if he produced love and hatred, or is, is instead of hatred, if he conquered angels and demons on earth, but he doesn't do anything about the condition of our hearts 
and sin, you still die and go to hell. That physical needs are serious. And God cares about each one of them, but every one of them is temporal. This is why people like Joni Erickson Tata can go through like just un- unimaginable levels of suffering, yet have rock-solid trust and faith in Jesus as she lays in bed, unable to move. Because although that's a physical, real need that she cries out for Jesus to heal her from, there's a deeper need in her heart that he has filled and is producing a joy that outlasts any sort of physical provision. So your physical needs are temporal. And Jesus came and cares for something deeper, your spiritual need, that doesn't just impact now, it ripples out into all of life now, on into eternity forever. That when Jesus comes in and he forgives sin, it ripples out in all of life now. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He begins to transform and bring joy where discord was in all of life. And that carries on into all of eternity. The third reason, when your spiritual need for forgiveness of sin is met, it changes your heart at a level that changes all of your life. This is that, that, that symptomatic treatment thing. If Jesus took care of that thing that you really want him to take care of, but doesn't change you, it doesn't really do anything. It makes you more comfortable It's like a placebo effect. Feels good for a bit. That that Jesus has come in forgiveness of sin to plant a seed of joy in your heart that would well up into a fruitful life of faith. And if he only does physical stuff, that never happens. See, we oftentimes get our values upside down. This is the Pharisees. Jesus says, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. Oftentimes we get tunnel vision. What what causes tunnel vision? Going too fast. Right? Right? I mean, some of you like to go fast. You get going real fast, and you're like, I don't have tunnel vision. You can't see (laughs) all the peripheral things going on when you're going fast. And we begin to focus only on what's right in front of us. And we get tunnel vision on our physical, current, temporal needs. And we miss the very reality that if we slowed down, we would see that in the midst of your physical, real needs, God is at work in the midst of them to bring about transformation and joy internally in your soul. See, oftentimes we get so tunnel vision and focused on the physical things that we need and want transformation of them that we don't really see the spiritual transformation that he's at work doing or that he wants to do in us. So we need to slow down. We need to slow down so that our values don't get upside down. Are you valuing the physical, temporal things that you want Jesus to do more than the spiritual things that he wants to do in you. Oftentimes the reality is Jesus uses the physical temporal needs that we have to work out 
deeper faith in our souls, in our hearts. Every moment of physical need, every, every need you have temporally, the Lord is at work to mold your heart more into the image of Jesus. Deeper trust, deeper faith in him. Deeper joy through the suffering of that physical, temporal need. So I think the thing that we ought to see is that we ought to be asking the Lord to do a work in our hearts alongside of, if not before, we're asking him to do a work inside of our temporal, real-life, physical needs. And are we as concerned about the things that we need here as we are the things that we need here? And I think this moves us to a few different things. Uh, hopefully, when we begin to see that our greatest need is not physical, but is spiritual, that we become, begin to humbly lay down not our physical needs, but our entire being, our whole heart and life before Jesus. And here's what we do. We let Him determine the needs that He wants to meet in what order He wants to meet them in. That we humbly say, Jesus, here's every part of my life. All of my physical, temporal needs that I feel right now. Here's every part of my heart. You do what you want when you want to do it. I'm ready. And you let Him begin to take care of your physical needs, and you let Him begin to take care of your spiritual needs. And transform your heart. Uh, maybe it looks like you're quick to worship Jesus for the physical, temporal needs that he's meeting. But oftentimes we neglect to see and praise Jesus for the things that he's doing spiritually inside of you. That when you see somebody, they make a tangible decision because of their love for Jesus. If their faith is growing, praise Jesus for it. In your own heart, are you worshiping Jesus for the things that he's doing, as comfortable or uncomfortable as they may be in your own soul? I think this ought to move us towards a more holy concern for our internal spiritual lives than for our external lives. Now, we should long for, pray for an internal holiness more than an external wholeness. A really easy way to see if this is taking place is, are you walking by faith in the midst of your need? Or are you walking in self-reliance? See, a heart that's actively open to Jesus, not just working in our physical needs, but our heart-level needs, our spiritual needs, is a heart that's saying, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you with this. You do it. Whatever you ask me to do, the answer is yes. But I'm not going to try and fix this problem unless you ask me to. Do something about it. I'm going to be faith, trusting in you, not self-reliant to fix it. If you're walking in self-reliance, it begins to expose the reality that you are thinking, most likely, about physical, temporal things way more than you're thinking about what he's trying to do in here. And the last thing is, is specifically for us as a church. The last response for us as a church, I think, is that we as a church, we need to pray for the needs of one another. Like, we need to pray for the needs of one another. 
and not just our physical needs, but we need to pray for the spiritual transformation that every single one of us needs. And pray that the Lord would give us insight to see that in the physical needs that we have, He's at work. That's the band coming up, don't worry. Um, that in the physical needs we have, are we praying that the Lord would meet those things and also praying that the Lord would change their heart in the middle of it? See, here's the deal. The Lord doesn't save you to walk alone. He saves you and rescue you, rescues and makes you a part of a people and He empowers by the Holy Spirit you, His children, he empowers to bring about the ongoing transformation in one another. As we say, you, you take responsibility and watchfulness over my soul. Pray for my soul. Ask questions that I need to be asked. Speak truth into my unbelief. That we as a people should care for the spiritual needs and the physical needs of one another. It's it's what it looks like to have faith. You see, Jesus is the forgiving king. He's God in flesh. Jesus has come to provide your needs, but he knows more specifically your greatest need is not temporal, but is spiritual. And as, as we in faith trust him to forgive our sins, he begins to restore our joy. He begins to reconcile the broken relationship we have with God, and he begins to empower you to live a joy-filled life, proclaiming the gospel to everyone around. See, Jesus has come to do a really deep work inside of you. He cares and he sees your real physical needs, but he's come to do much more than that. I want to encourage us as we respond that we would take a posture of willing, humble, Jesus, here's all my life, my heart, my spiritual life, my needs there, and my physical. You do what you want. I'll give you full reign and roll. I want to encourage you in this first song that as, as we sing to let Jesus work in this first song. And then I encourage you to go get your kids. Go get your kindergarten through fifth graders. Uh, if you're able, if you, if you don't need to stay still with Jesus, to go get them and bring them in to sing with you. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus that he sees so much deeper, that he sees so much deeper than our temporal needs to the root needs that we have. And he humbly, powerfully came to meet him. God, would you work in our hearts now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Brandon will be if you need to talk. Mm-hmm.